0: Hello and welcome to Tammy Ginders.
1: Lots more things to ponder this week, including the man without whom we would not really have the wonderful collection of heritage items that we do.
0: We have more, would you believe, on Ball Lightning. Who would have thought there's such a connection with Ball Lightning and the Isle of Man? And I've got another little challenge for you. It might work, it might not. Who wonders? always wondering on this programme, Tammy Ginders I wonder it is what it's all about Pretty much anything goes, great name for a radio show and uh, great fun to do because frankly there are no borders and there are, <laughs> anything anything fits in if it's something you wonder about
1: Exactly, can I just correct you on something oh, go on. Go the on. Ball Lightning is loosely connected to the Isle of Man insofar as it's a, with a person who now lives in the Isle of Man but it wasn't actually seen on the Isle of Man so does, does that count? Are we still okay with it?
0: Uh, well yeah, we'll have to be We're going to do it.
1: Alright then, let's do it Here we are then with a little follow-on from last week's Tamagindus when we were talking to Adrian Cowan from the Met Office about ball lightning. And this came about because it was a conversation with Norma Cowell who described what she saw when she was in a car with three other people. They all saw the same thing, this ball of lightning. Mark Tiley, I had never heard of this before, but I mentioned ball lightning to you and immediately... You had a story.
2: Well, yes, because one of my uh, very elderly relatives, sadly no longer with us, she was my, and I'm going to get this right, she was my father's cousin. So I always called her a great aunt. It, it doesn't matter. But she lived to be 99, just missed her 100th birthday, and one of the longest living Tylees back in the day, her name was May. God rest your soul, May. But she was also a diarist and wrote the family history from her side, from my dad's side. My dad was useless like that, did nothing. But she was brilliant. And this story has been around, I think it was in the early 1800s, because she was told it first hand by her granny, wow. who was part of the story. Anyway, an elderly Tylee was in a bed uh, in a little cottage somewhere near Oswestry on the North Wales border, because that's where my lot all came from originally, on my dad's side. And Ball Lightning came down the chimney, hit the grate, because all the bedrooms, as you can imagine, had a fireplace, in and all the rooms did, and then bounced across, hovering, and hit the iron bedstead that the dear old lady was in now it didn't kill her because i don't think she was touching it or anything she was just literally spellbound and a huge boom all the people downstairs heard it rushed up and the woman that rushed up would have been my great aunt's granny as a kid and this woman was able to describe what happened And it was just one of those things. And ball lightning, there's so many weird reports, aren't there? I mean, you must have got this when you were doing last week's show.
1: Well, looking into it, yeah. I mean, and Adrian Cowan said he has never seen it. Uh, None of his Met Office colleagues have ever seen it, but he is a believer.
2: Yep. Anyway, that's what happened then. Spool forward about 150 years. My father, who used to work in the centre of London, was coming back out west over the Hammersmith flyover. And his car got struck by lightning, regular lightning. In the pouring rain, he said there was a huge purple flash, but, of course, being so wet, it just went, boom, straight through the car, into the road and gone. He was fine. Uh, So I'm just waiting for my turn.
1: (laughs) If there is any ball lightning, would you be able to take your phone...
2: You know, you've got to be quick, haven't you? Yeah, got to be quick. Course I will. I mean,
1: it just sounds almost supernatural, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine that woman sitting in her bed? What she must have thought was going on?
2: She had no idea. She had no idea. But it didn't just—it didn't just go bang crash. She saw it enough to describe what she saw because it came down, hit the grate, moved almost slowly towards the bed, and then boom, the whole thing went through the bed.
1: Mark Tyley. I bet there are other
2: family stories that you could share with us. If you ever want "Waking the Dead" as a theme, I've got one of those. Again, from my lovely, lovely May Tiley. It's all written down. I'll share that with you one day.
1: Oh, wow. I've had a, um, I've had a little preview of that one. Terrifying. Really. Mm-hmm. Do we need to come back at mm-hmm. in a future series. I think we do. And actually, now. You might remember, if you were Tamagindus listeners, gosh, when did we start this? Must be nearly 16 years ago. More years ago than you like to think, really. Um, There was a story that we did about a grave in Maloo Church, which is loosely connected to what Mark was referring to there.
0: Does it have chains on?
1: That's the one. Uh, yeah, Matthew Holzel. Uh, yeah, yeah, the mystery of that
0: one. I'm, I'm just amazed for something which is such a rare phenomenon and that with precious little effort, realistically, we sort of came across it, we floated the first one, we had two comments off the back of something and then another comment as well. You mm-hmm. think this is something which is as rare as hen's teeth. And yet, just in the confines of Manx Radio and our immediate associates, we found several people who actually have stories to tell associated with it. Amazing.
1: But yeah, ball lightning. And it's interesting, I think, Mark's story, because it happened so many years ago, because you might have thought, well, it's a modern day phenomena because of all the electricity and everything in the air now, but it seems not.
0: It does indeed. Uh, if you have any thoughts or any stories for a future series of Tammy Ginders, we'd be intrigued to hear, particularly if you would come and have a little chat with us about it. Who knows? We could have a ball lightning special. Beth S B at maxradio.com, Howard Kane with an E on the end of Kane at maxradio.com. We would be delighted to hear from you. <laughs> Now, it's not just things or weird oddities and curious happenings, also people.
1: It is, and we've really enjoyed being down at the Manx Museum with Katie King down there, finding out about the people who've really helped shape the Isle of Man and make it what it is
3: today. Here's someone that I knew
1: nothing about.
3: Yep, now I'm really excited to be talking about this chap. He's one of my personal heroes, um, because I I like to describe him as... um, I don't know, a warrior, a superhero who established the Max Museum. Um, His name is Philip Moore Callow-Kermode. I'm just going to refer to him as PMC. That's what we call him here. Um, So he was born in the 1850s and he was the son of a Ramsey clergyman, one of seven children. And he was was very bright and he was known for being um, very serious, very um, scholarly, I suppose. And He grew up at a time on the Isle of Man when there was very little regard for history or heritage um, from the top moving down. There was a sort of belief that the Isle of Man might be better off, perhaps under England, English rule. There was a sort of belief amongst some people that we were just like England, really, just a little bit that dropped off. There was not really an understanding that we have a really unique Um, culture, that we've got a really unique history. Um, This was just sort of um, disregarded. And PMC and scholars like him, they spent years and years trying to explain to um, people high up on the Isle of Man but also ordinary Manx people that they should be proud of their island, they should be excited about their island. But he was actually told at one point when he mooted this idea that there should be a National Museum for the Isle of Man um, he was told that there is nothing of significance on the Isle of Man to fill one small room, let alone a museum. Um, So they had this uphill battle. So in 1879, um, PMC was one of the founding members of the Isle of Man Natural History and Antiquarian Society. And they were a group of like-minded scholars, both men and women, who were committed to researching and, importantly, promoting the history of the Isle of Man, to explain that we've got a Viking heritage, that we've got you know, these, this sort of Celtic story to tell, that we are different, we are not part of, we're not like the rest of the British Isles. Um, But it was falling on deaf ears, mostly. So what they had to do was find evidence. They had to get evidence together. And in this regard, they were helped by one of the governors of the Isle of Man. In fact, a number of governors. One of them was Governor Henry Locke, who you might know as being the governor that sort of kick-started the tourist industry Mm -hmm. on the Isle of Man, put loads of investment in that. He recognised straight away that the the landscape of the Isle of Man was beautiful and must hold secrets. So he commissioned the first archaeological, professional archaeological survey into the Isle of Man man and which was started to show that these lumps and bumps might reveal clues and it was the antiquarian society with PMC um, as president for many many years um, that started to started to look into these sites and he dedicated his life to um, what we now know as the Manx stone crosses so you may know that the Isle of Man has got one of the largest groupings of these sort of medieval stone crosses anywhere outside of Scandinavia. To date, there's over 200 have been discovered. But in PMC's time, these stone crosses that were carved in the Viking Age and earlier were being terribly sort of... um, vandalized i suppose in the landscape so farmers would there were big big lumps of stone so farmers would pull them down and use them to prop up a, a hedge um, they'd be used often in lintels in cottages they'd just be ripped down and put above a door frame sometimes they were chopped up and um, hacked up and used as dry stone walling material so there was real disregard and pmc and his band of patriots as i like to describe them um they weren't beyond going into a field and stealing these or well, taking them for the nation under no authority they would just take them away and he dedicated his life to trying to find them and at the same time recording them so he was a brilliant drawer sketch draftsman is that the word um so he drew all these intricate details on these crosses so that we could start to understand the language and the runic writing, and the Ogham writing. You know, he'd start to unpick that, unpick these beautiful um, carvings that tell stories of Norse mythology mixed with Christian icono- iconography. So all sort of merging together. Um, And that's when people started to listen they started to they kept finding cool things like this this little group of little this little group of scholars um and finally government started to take notice and in 1886 the manx museum and ancient monument trustees were formed and that trustee body's goal was to protect and preserve the ancient monuments of the isle of man so now they had um, legal authority to seize these assets and stop them being vandalized and damaged um, another governor that helps now are coming into the sort of turnover of the of the end of the nineteenth century was Governor henneker and he was really angry that we there's a quotation in the Museum 100 exhibition where we stood that we are constantly losing not only antiquities but specimens connected with the island so if you found a very cool piece of Viking age treasure you could just sell that take it off island there was no there was no repository for these sorts of things um and likewise pmc in that same era is saying when will manx people realize that these monuments so few in number are of priceless value and that their beauty and their interest should be our greatest pride to preserve so um people are starting to listen and that's where this little object here this very unassuming object tells its own story um about the history of the bank museum and pmc oh the little object. We shall find out more about the little object in a moment.
0: Absolutely. I always have to keep thinking it is PMC, not PMT. I almost sort of think my mind keeps wandering off. I had some never reason. thought that. Sorry, it just must be me. Uh, now, listen, uh, you are listening to Tammy Ginders. Beth and H with you, by the way. Another little weird challenge. I saw something the other day. All You know, you get loads of this stuff online, don't you? And a guy was saying, here's a good trick for you. Uh, get a pack of cards, which I happen to have here. OK. OK, take them out. And he says you can give them a bit of a shuffle or whatever. And then you say to your mate, which is you in this case... um you say, right, yeah, I'm going to magic these cards. I'm going to shuffle them up and you can shuffle them if you want, but whatever, mix them up like that. I'm not a very good shuffler. And then you say, right, pick a couple of consecutive numbers between one and ten. So have we picked ones? Six and seven. Six and seven. Okay, so six and seven. And I say, right, magically, uh, you will find now that in this pack of cards when i give them to you, six and seven will be together.
1: Okay, pass them over here. <clears throat> okay, so... Um, in right, theory. Here we go. So there's a six. No, that's next to a three. There's seven there. There's a six. No, it's next to a nine. Okay, two more chances. <clears throat> There's a six. No, it's next to a king. Um, and where's the other six? I'm going to be honest. H, I'm going to take the jokers out. So if we try it again, um, ne- n- no, no. The, si- the six next to ten. Right. Well, do you rubbish. know what? I'm going to shuffle them. Go on then. Okay. Right. There we go. And you're going to think of.
0: Okay, ready? Right, you give them a quick shuffle. And I will say um, nine and ten.
1: You're going to say nine and ten, so I'll just give it one more little shuffle. One more,
0: yeah. You can tell she's been working down the, uh, playing poker again in the newsroom.
1: (laughs) Okay, here we go. Right, so we're looking for nine and ten together. Correct. There's ten with a two. No, this is honestly possibly one of the most underwhelming challenges I think we've ever had. No.
0: Nope. Well, just you never tell with these things. The idea was that statistically he claimed this bod uh, that the chances are nine times out of ten you'd get the two together. And like the first time I did it, I thought, "Wow, he's right; it works." And then every time I've done it since, it hasn't. So I think it's actually one of those ones which, no. is, in actual fact, is utter bunkum. <laughs> uh, A load well, there of rubbish.
1: We go. I'm glad he didn't waste time and on that and I you wonder... know go out and do your entertaining with people and thinking you were going to wow them because that's wowed no one yeah
0: well i'm not going to be a magician then well there we go there's one we've uh, debunked that one doesn't work if you see that online utter utter rubbish should we hear more about pmc yeah go on let's do it
3: so we're looking at a little tiny silver coin um and it comes from the Balaquail Viking hoard. This was the first Viking treasure hoard ever found on the Isle of Man. It was found in 1894, just down the road from here. Some builders were um, preparing the ground for the foundations for a new house. And they kept coming across all this like rusty old metal, these scrappy bits of metal. And it was obvious to them that they were coins, but they were all horrible. So when they picked them up, they'd crumble. So they were just sort of chucking them out on this scrap heap pile. And then they found like a bangle that they thought was probably copper. So that might be worth some money. So they put that in a separate pile. And I don't understand how this came to be, but at some point, somebody thought it might be something significant, this this bits of metal that are being dragged up. And PMC Kermade was called in to inspect the site. He was known as the island's greatest sort of scholar in the history of archaeology and stuff. So he was called in and he said, oh my goodness, this is, you know, this is like Viking Age treasure. You've got to stop, stop digging. Where's the rest of it? Um, and it transpired that a lot of it had been taken to the tip. They, they estimate about a thousand coins were lost before um missiles stepped in there's also a lot of evidence that some some of it was stolen um so they had to put an advert in the newspapers the police saying if anyone's got any part of the suspected treasure trove, you must return it to the police station immediately but i think i think there's an acceptance that some of these coins are very much somewhere on the isle of man still and if you do have one do return it to us that'd be nice <laughs> um, but at this stage the whole hoard, some 200 coins, bangles, silver, gold, beautiful things, were taken to the British Museum to be valued and assigned treasure. And indeed it was. And at which point the British Museum could not return it to the Isle of Man because we had nowhere safe to house it. We had no museum. And that—that that is what rallied government. That's what got their backs up because the British Museum had our treasure. Um, So then plans really began to move with regard to getting a museum. Um, A few years later, 1897, PMC Kermode was leading an excavation to try and find an entire giant deer skeleton. So um, they'd found a skeleton some 60 years earlier that the Duke of Athol had secreted off the Isle of Man and sold to Edinburgh Museum, still on display there. Um, So we wanted our own deer. So um, there's these beautiful deer this megafauna, these skeletons were known to be on the island so they kept finding a bit of antler here and a you know and a bone here but eventually in 1897 pmc and his team found an entire skeleton at st john's this caused so much excitement on the isle of man so um there was nowhere to display it so people were like we want to see it we want to see this treasure so governor henneker granted castle russian to the manx museum and ancient monument trustees as a temporary museum while they found somewhere else and that opened in 1905 and there's some photographs on the wall in our museum 100 exhibition of the deer in the what we now call the presence chamber goodness knows how they got it in there um and the giant deer itself was put together by one of the experts from the Natural History Museum in London that that worked on dinosaur reconstruction. So it's been, it was very well put together. So you can see some of the sort of artifacts and specimens that were there. And then the war broke out and everything got slowed down naturally. Um, and then just after the war, this building where we stood now, the um, the Noble's Hospital building as was, was empty. So it was very. Uh, evident to everybody that this building was too small um, for a hospital. So they opened a new hospital on Westmoreland Road that I'm sure a lot of you remember. And um, this building was empty. So they negotiated with the Henry Bloom Noble trustees. Henry Bloom Noble himself had died at this point. And this building was gifted to the people of the Isle of Man um, to build the first Manx Museum for the history of people of the Isle of Man. And it finally opened in 1922
2: it's
0: an amazing story and what struck me is and, and as a and the story in yourself why do you think before prior to so sort of 1890 80, 80, 80 round about there there was absolutely no interest or value attached to the island's cultural heritage it seemed that as you say no one seemed to give a monkey's was it just the changing times or I what think, was it
3: yeah i think exactly that i think it was a changing time prior to that the century before the 18th century there was huge pride in the island being different um and I guess with the act of revestment in 1765, when the Isle of Man was given to Westminster, the end of the running trade or smuggling or whatever you want to call it. The Isle of Man had to change quite a lot. Um, it actually strengthened our own government. We, we didn't have this sort of the Duke of Athol sort of dominating us. It, it gave our own government an opportunity to develop and forge our own future. Um, and I guess people's preoccupation, particularly if you're thinking for the ordinary max people, their preoccupation was survival. Um, they, you know, they're not going to sit around worrying about Viking treasure. Um, and in terms of the elite, their priority is making money mm. and, and labelling the Isle of Man to succeed and develop. And when Governor Locke came to the Isle of Man with this idea to transform the Isle of Man into this very profitable seafaring sorry not for seafaring seaside holiday destination um there was masses of opportunities to make money for loads of different people lots of different people and i think that's when things started they started to take an interest in this side of it because whatever you made us unique made us stand out from the other seaside towns and that would make us more profitable so i actually think it's all about money hmm. um, and when Some people are critical, lots of people are critical of the holiday industry at this time, actually, particularly the Methodist community that didn't like this influx of English people. But there is an argument that this influx of English people started to um, homogenise the Isle of Man a little bit as well. So the the dominant language was now English. People were mixing with people from England all the time, whereas they perhaps hadn't done before. And there was a bit of a fear that the Isle of Man was actually becoming... um, like somewhere else from England so I think it was a backlash to that as well because one of the things PMC Kermode and his scholars did was make sure that the language was being preserved and written down and recorded in some instances as well so there was a concern I think that this traditional way of life that had been um, particularly on the you know ordinary people's lives was, bit, was being lost and transformed people were sort of emigrating in huge numbers as well so there was a real transitional time on the Isle of Man and ultimately there's this phrase isn't there um it's an anchor for our celtic souls the heritage of the isle of man our culture became that anchor that held us all together at the turn of the century when all this change happened and with the wars as well that carried it on we we were sort of wanted to protect our own story in this in this new world
0: a tenacious band of patriots as it says on the wall there. All about the money then Muskie, what do you reckon?
3: Yeah, what an incredible story
1: and just looking at the photograph here of PMC and you just think one person and his spark and his belief in how important things were have led to where we're standing today. Gosh, that was poetic, Beth. What, uh, that was enough, it was very was, wasn't it? Fascinating. Thank you so much to Katie King for the time that she's taken over the past few weeks to tell us about the people who've really shaped the Isle of Man and made it the what it is today. Quick delve into my little book of laxie. Go on, Go on this is the headlines. Uh, so, okay, right, February the 2nd, 1884. It has been rumoured for some time past that a couple of footpads were frequenting the deads for the purpose of robbery and that two young women, when returning home from a late service, were accosted with the somewhat unusual demand... Your money or your life. It was further reported on Tuesday morning that Kane, the local policeman, had secured the said highwaymen and marched them off to Douglas.
0: <laughs> you know, I didn't think we had highwaymen on the other man. Maybe the pub in Peel's right after all. This time, right. Very quickly, if we don't hang around too much. Uh, I found a cassette from the archive, so uh, bear with me.
1: Here we go. Push the button. Push the button. And what do we got?
0: Very clearly, we were in Plymouth, and the whole of. Plymouth Sound, which those who've been there will remember as one of the most beautiful harbours in England, was absolutely full of landing craft, all American, because they were heading for Utah Beach, which was one of the western beaches, and they seemed to be living in these very uncomfortable craft, uh, what seemed days to us, and as you know there was a certain delay because of the weather at one moment, and... Um, I recall on the. It's a fantastic voice. I think it's not marked, but I think it's Sir Nigel Cecil. We talked about a governor earlier on.
1: Wonderful voice, that you say.
0: Talking about his part in the war. Gosh.
1: How lucky we are to have these at our fingertips.
0: There they are, even if they're not labelled. That was a good delve. Okie dokie, we might see you shortly. Look after yourselves.
3: Take care, bye bye.